On the 1st of September, 1991, a French doctor named Yves Godard set sail on a nine-meter sailboat. The good doctor, a man with nerves of steel, who had a reputation as calm and collected, set sail for a short trip off the coast of Brittany. The sun was hot and the sea was calm, with no clouds on the horizon. Dr. Godard checks his instruments as he steers the boat while his two children, Camille, aged six, and Marius, aged four, sleep on the deck. After an hour of motoring, he hoists the sails. He, his wife Marie, and his children would never be seen again. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Today we are headed to the northwest coast of France and out into the English Channel. The English Channel is fairly shallow. The deepest part is a narrow underwater valley, which is about 120 meters or nearly 400 feet deep. But in most places, the depths are between 150 and 200 feet. Shallow enough to be worked by local fishermen whose nets drag the ocean floor to find desirable seafood, and whose nets often pull up much less desirable debris. The normal debris is plastic and glass garbage, but every now and then a surprise comes tangled in those nets. Grenades, cocaine, and even human remains. Dr. Goddard tended to steer clear of the fishing boats when he sailed, as most sailors did. He had booked the boat on August 15th. His charter would be from September 1st to September 15th. Just a nice, long weekend getaway. He'd been working too hard lately. But this defined Yves Goddard. As a young man, he loved the theater. In his youth, he played in an amateur troupe. Nothing too serious, but he loved it, and he never missed a rehearsal. But on opening night, he disappeared without warning. No one knew where he was. They would find him in the hospital, treating one of his patients. He missed opening night because she was dying, and he chose to remain at her bedside for 48 hours. He was always known to throw himself into his work. His medical thesis in 1984 was devoted to the treatment of sciatica by acupuncture, he drew his sources of inspiration from traditional Chinese medicine. He liked that stuff. Medicine that was a little less well-known. Things like magnetism, acupuncture, homeopathy, and more. These were practices that many of his peers opposed. They thought he was a fool, but he didn't care. He dove back into his treatments, looking to balance the yin and yang of the body's energy. He let his hair grow and only worried about the health of his patients, to whom he was devoted. In the early 90s, he'd meet his future wife, Marie. Friends described the two as belonging together. They were both brunettes, slim and fit. Emotionally, they seemed to have a close relationship. They slowly pushed old friends away, wanting to spend time with just each other. They'd go to the theater, and if there were complaints about the relationship at all, it was just that Marie felt like Eve worked too much both as a doctor, but also on the house they were renovating together. Marie would get pregnant early on, and shortly after their daughter Camille was born, they would get married. It was an intimate ceremony, only attended by their respective children. It was a second marriage for both of them. Eve had two sons from an earlier marriage, and Marie had a boy and a girl from her previous marriage. Before long, they would have another child, a son named Marius. Eve's business was going well for the most part, but in 1993 he was temporarily suspended by the Medical Council for illegal practice of pharmacy. He was prescribing medicines outside of what was acceptable to physicians in the area. 
even other holistic doctors. This upset him, so he wrote to many homeopaths and acupuncturists asking for their support against his suspension. Ten showed up for his first meeting, and none for his second. It was after this that Eve decided that since none of his co-workers and peers supported his endeavors, he would do things his own way. He left his former business partner and set up his own practice. He was confident that he would be able to take his patients with him, repay his debts to his former partner, and finish paying for his beautiful new home. In order to do this, he asked his wife Marie to help him and do some of the secretarial work. She would have preferred not to, having enjoyed being a stay-at-home mother and homemaker, but she eventually agreed to three days a week. Let's just say things didn't go well in his new practice. He wasn't able to take enough patients with him, and he wasn't making enough money, so he joined a fringe group called the Confederation for the Defense of Tradesmen and Craftsmen. This group, sometimes referred to as a mafia group, openly advocate for tax evasion and have been known to start riots and practice strong-arm street tactics to get what they want. While Eve didn't participate in the violence, he did refuse to pay his social security contributions, and he opened an overseas account to hide his money in. After a few years, the government caught wind of it, and they would end up asking him for more than the equivalent of 300,000 euros in unpaid bills. Every couple of days, he would get notice. The government was relentless, and they wouldn't let him go. He felt like he was working as hard as he could, and for the first time, he would allegedly ask the group he was part of to organize retaliation against the people who were putting pressure on him to pay his bills. The only comfort he had was his children and his wife, but even she seemed different. She had become sullen and depressed. She hated feeling like they couldn't pay their bills. All the work she was doing to help her husband while trying to manage the house and two young children was for nothing. They couldn't seem to pull out of debt. I think there are a lot of people who can relate to her story. She began to attend counseling. There she poured out her heart. She felt overwhelmed and neglected. Her husband was too busy for her. She had just turned 40 and wasn't feeling great about aging up. According to one of my sources, Marie fell in love with her therapist and asked him if he'd like to be with her. He would later tell police that this wasn't all that uncommon between doctors and patients and that he gently turned her down. Her diaries were full of her frustrations and her fantasies. By 1999, it definitely seemed that their marriage was at a low point, and here's where things take a turn. It's likely that Eve felt like a breaking point was approaching, and he decided that a family vacation was of the utmost importance. On August 15th, he booked a four-day sailing trip, and on August 30th, Eve, at 44 years old, saw his patients for the last time. The next day, he canceled all his consultations and put his affairs in order at work. According to my sources, Marie picked up the kids after school on the 31st. Then Eve took his children fishing at several small ponds near where his home was. The next day, he'd take them sailing. As he packed his car the next morning, a neighbor would stop by and speak with Eve. He told her that they were taking a sailing trip. And this was surprising to the neighbor because normally, when the family left for vacation, they would get in touch with her and leave her with a key so she could feed the cats. They hadn't this time, but she didn't think too much of it. 
On the way to St. Malo, where the boat was settled cozily in a marina, Eve stopped to buy some cleaning supplies, a mop, some garbage bags, and some whiskey. Once he'd arrived, he spoke with the boat's owner and told him that they were planning on heading west toward Pieros Girek. The boat they were using was a 30-foot sun odyssey. It was named the Nick. I should warn you, I suppose, that I took several years of French in high school, but I've rarely been able to use it or practice it, so I'm very sure my pronunciations will be way off, so I apologize to all of you wonderful French-speaking people. Pardonnez-moi. Dr. Yves Godard was told the boat was ready to go and was equipped with VHF and had all the mandatory safety equipment. He reassured the owner that he'd be back on the 5th. When the owner asked if he was taking the kids on his own, Eve said no, he had company joining him, but no one observed anyone else except Eve and his kids on the boat. What the owner couldn't have known was that Eve's wife Murray hated sailing, and to be honest, no one knows if she ever got on that boat at all. It wasn't long before the Nick was seen motoring its way out of the marina. The next day, sure enough, the Nick was seen sailing about 20 miles west of St. Malo. Here, Eve was stopped by a customs boat. The officers looked over the boat and everything seemed to be in order. The only odd note was that Eve seemed anxious and was short with the officers. One of the children was up on the deck napping, but no one saw Marie or the other child. The customs agents took note that the motor was running despite a fair amount of wind, and they noted what appeared to be a windsurfing board inside its cover strapped to the bow of the boat. One of the agents thought that Dr. Goddard was acting suspicious, so they followed up with the boat's owners to verify that Dr. Goddard had actually rented the boat, and indeed, his story checked out. Later that day, witnesses saw the boat in the same bay just a little further west, and that evening, a witness saw the boat in a small cove called Brehek. This cove at the time wasn't popular with sailors. It was used by mostly fishing boats and boats that might want to discreetly unload cargo, likely to be smuggled into France. These kids were seen with their father in the area. He bought waffles for his kids from a local vendor. That was on September 3rd, but after one day there, the boat and the family disappeared from the harbor. They weren't seen at all on the 4th. On the morning of September 5th, the day the Godard vacation was supposed to end, a French fishing boat worked its way through the English Channel. The boat, called the Ascara, made its home in the port of Roscoe on the northern coast of Brittany, and her crew knew the waters as well as anyone else. As the deckhands tended to their nets, the captain saw a flicker of red in the distance. It blinked behind the blue-white churn of the sea below. He pulled out his binoculars to clarify what he was seeing. It was a zodiac dinghy, unmanned and adrift, but this in itself wasn't necessarily surprising. According to this captain, there were plenty of amateur sailors traveling on the waters and pleasure crafts, and half of them couldn't tie a knot to save themselves. His opinion, not mine. The captain decided to take a closer look. He gathered the dinghy and discovered that it originally came from a charter boat called the Nick. He finds a raincoat with a checkbook in the pocket, belonging to one Dr. Eve Goddard. The captain decides it's best to contact the authorities because there's no telling what might have happened, and besides, someone might be searching for their little boat. Little did they know, 
they had unwittingly stumbled upon one of the most interesting missing person cases in France's history. The family would never be seen again. But over the next 20 years, plenty of circumstantial evidence would emerge, and the level of intrigue grew enormously. The Coast Guard were immediately informed, and everyone was worried that something terrible had happened. They don't immediately put the pieces together, but they are able to tie the dinghy back to the Nick, which at that point couldn't be found. There were no Mayday calls, no SOS calls from the Nick's radio. The Coast Guard attempted, in vain, to reach the family, but were met with silence. The police and the owner of the Nick, who was anxious about his boat and the family, would become even more so when they never returned to St. Malo, as planned. By September 7th, the boat and its crew were still missing. The boat's owner and the Coast Guard and law enforcement were starting to piece together that something bad had likely happened to the family, but they don't immediately think that it's anything more than a boat accident. They send a plane out over the Brittany coast with hopes that the Nick will be spotted, and they decide it's time to search Dr. Goddard's vehicle. It had been left in the marina parking lot. Inside it, they found cleaning items that Goddard had purchased, and they also found traces of blood and morphine. I'm not exactly sure what large traces means, but that's the description I found. Large traces of blood. Morphine is a powerful painkiller. It's also very addictive. This discovery pushed police to search the Goddard home. As they approached the house, the beautiful exterior appeared to be warm and welcoming. There was a beautiful garden where the kids would play. Evidence of this was clear with the presence of a red and black ball under a bench, Sailboards leaned up against a wall, and there were barriers here and there to prevent small children from harming themselves. The police entered the premises and saw a note on the kitchen table in Dr. Goddard's handwriting. It wasn't addressed to anyone, and it read, We're leaving for a few days. We'll be back on Sunday. Signed, Marie and Eve. The investigators must have been hungry because they noticed that the fridge was fully stocked and the house was tidy. The kids' backpacks were placed neatly near the door. One officer was quoted as saying, It's a bit of a bohemian mess. But everything seemed normal, until we reached the bedroom. There, under a rolled-up green duvet, the mattress was covered in blood. Blood marked the wall, but had been wiped off sloppily. They moved into a bathroom, where they find a bloody sink and a washcloth. Heading downstairs, they noticed blood drops on the staircase that they hadn't noticed on the way up. On the first level, they do a more thorough investigation and find a blanket with traces of blood in the washing machine. The blood belonged to Marie, and it matched the blood found in the parked car abandoned in the marina parking lot. There was no blood or anything abnormal noticed in Camille and Marius' rooms. The officers interviewed the sweet elderly neighbor who was known to watch the family pets. Even without keys, she had taken the time to feed the cats and bulls outside the house. She thought the family were very discreet and nice people. Little Camille and Marius came over from time to time to borrow videos. And although the family kept to themselves, whenever the doctor was needed, he would happily come treat whoever it was that needed help. If the timeline is correct... Marie hadn't been seen by anyone for nine days. 
She was last seen on August 31st when she picked the kids up from school. The last person to hear from her outside of the people living in their home was Marie's older daughter. They spoke by phone around 5 p.m. on the 31st. Marie made no mention to her daughter about going on a sailing trip the next day. Law enforcement studied Dr. Goddard's office schedule. It seemed he had continued to make medical appointments for his patients on September 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, despite the fact that he had rented the NIC for those dates. He ended up canceling the appointments for the 31st, but law enforcement couldn't understand why he rented the boat for those dates and made medical appointments for the same time period. They started calling the patients to ask about their interactions with the doctor and discovered that the patients were either existing patients that had never actually made appointments or they were completely made-up names. In other words, he had falsified his entire schedule for the beginning of September. The appointments were in his handwriting, so they knew it wasn't Marie that made the entries. The clues were pointing to premeditation. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On September 10th, a murder investigation was opened. Eve Goddard was the prime suspect, and he became the subject of an international arrest warrant. On September 16th, 11 days after the dinghy was discovered, amateur sailors off the coast of the Channel Island of Guernsey discovered a life jacket belonging to the Nick. A week later, on September 23rd, the inflatable life raft from the Goddard's boat was recovered half-deflated on a beach at Lime Bay in Dorset, England. Strangely, the raft's canopy top had been cut off and was missing. At the time, French investigators were leaning towards the theory that Eve had murdered his wife and then ran off with his kids. But these discoveries brought chaos to the investigation. Maybe the Nick really had sank. But, according to experts in winds, tides, and oceanography, it would have been impossible for the items to be found in these different locations. They couldn't have got there based on the movement of the water alone. This means that someone would have had to intentionally scatter the belongings. Even more puzzling was the fact that the inflatable life raft should have already been sunk. Its emergency inflation device had been removed. According to the manufacturer, it should have sank in only three days after the device was removed. That would mean that someone was in that raft within the last three days and had removed the device. If the doctor had planted the checkbook and raincoat in the dinghy and then dumped the life raft overboard to make it look like the boat sank, why would he remove the inflation device? Why would the inflation device ever be removed? If the boat had indeed sunk and they entered the life raft on the day it disappeared, they would have been in the life raft for almost 20 days, and since the top had been cut off, they would have been exposed to the sun the entire time. They would likely have died of thirst. It's also strange that the life raft wasn't spotted days earlier. This area was bustling with traffic. 
On October 14th, a hotel owner on the Isle of Man, which is an island in the Irish Sea, nearly 560 miles off the coast of France, came forward and said that he's absolutely convinced that Yves Godard and his children stayed at his hotel from September 7th until September 14th. This is interesting because just 12 days earlier, law enforcement in Normandy received an anonymous letter stating that Dr. Godard and his kids were on the Isle of Man. The letter said clearly, Dr. Godard is alive and living in the Irish Sea on the Isle of Man. Take this seriously. A second witness on the Isle of Man said they saw the threesome as well and that the little girl was blonde like Camille and she was asking for her mother. The Isle of Man is known for being a tax haven and Dr. Godard did have a bank account there. A second letter was sent on October 8th telling investigators that the three were on Lewis Island off the coast of Scotland and that they needed to hurry to save Camille and Marius. Investigators took this seriously, so they traveled to Lewis Island, where they were met with hostility by local law enforcement. The warrant they were supposed to have never showed up, and that made it difficult for French law enforcement to interview anyone, but they did manage to speak to a man selling tickets at the ferry station, who very convincingly stated that he saw Dr. Godard and the kids in the beginning of October. The letter writer never came forward, but handwriting experts determined that it was likely a woman's handwriting, someone in their early 60s who happened to be close to Dr. Godard. They would eventually do DNA testing on the stamps, but couldn't tie the DNA to anyone. In time, plenty of other people would come forward with sightings of the family. They were seen in South Africa, Miami, and the Greek island of Crete, but the only somewhat credible lead seemed to be the Isle of Man and the Lewis Island leads. It was a complete mystery as to where Dr. Goddard and his kids were. Sailors would throw in their opinions, saying that the sailing weather and winds were excellent that early September, and the family could easily have sailed across the Atlantic or down to Africa. Four months later, the crew of a fishing trawler would pull up a canvas bag off the coast of Ile de Bat. It contained numerous personal items, things that belonged to the Goddard family. Things like clothes, checkbooks, insurance documents, driver's licenses, everything that would have been in Marie's handbag, binoculars, and a hammer. There were so many theories by this time, but the most prominent was that Dr. Goddard, who supposedly loved his children and his wife deeply, felt his relationship with his wife was strained. His business was failing. He needed a break so he decided they all needed to get away together as a family, and he booked them a vacation. Maybe he confronted his wife with his plan, and she refused. According to her family, she didn't like sailing, and if the affair rumors were true, she didn't like him much anymore either. Perhaps her response triggered him. Or maybe he believed she was having an affair and planned her murder weeks earlier. Either way, it was believed he killed her, and either disposed of her body that night or somehow hid it from his kids and onlookers when he brought his children and her body to the boat the next day. He was on the run. The theory was believable, but it was just a theory. Nine months after the family disappeared, a piece of heartbreaking evidence would come into the light. A seashelling boat cast its nets along the bed of St. Bruet Bay. 
They worked through the night, and as they sifted through the shells to determine what to keep and what to return to the ocean, they came across a fragment of what appeared to be a human skull, which they threw back into the water. I know. I'm just as surprised as you that they did that. Four hours later, a second skull would come up. This one, the fishermen kept and turned into authorities. Tragically, a DNA analysis would reveal that it was the skull of Camille, Dr. Goddard's daughter. This beautiful six-year-old girl lay in pieces on the ocean floor. Scientific analysts at the French Research Institute for the Exploitation of the Sea concluded that the skull had been at this location since at least February of 2000. This seemed to corroborate the theory that the Nick sank either accidentally or intentionally, claiming the lives of its passengers. The area in which Camille's skull was found was close to where the Nick was inspected by the customs officers. The French Navy would scour the area with a mine hunter. A mine hunter is a Navy ship that's obviously used to find mines, but it's also used to find anomalies on the ocean floor. It uses imaging sonar, and if something interesting is found, they send divers down to explore. But there was absolutely nothing of interest found on the ocean floor in the area where Camille's skull was found. At this point, most people believed that Yves Godard was a family annihilator. The investigation would take a bit of a turn when over a year after they disappeared, Dr. Godard's medical card was found by a walker on a beach at Chappelle one of the largest islands in the area, around where the boat was last seen. This was in February of 2001. Eleven days later, a bank card bearing the name Yves Godard was found on the same beach by a resident. Then a month after that, beachcombers would find a credit card belonging to the Godard family on that same beach. Investigators scoured the beach thoroughly, and they surveyed the seabed around the island, but once again, nothing was found. But on June 3rd, yet another credit card was found off the beach by a diver. Since there was no wreckage found, these events led investigators to believe that Dr. Goddard stopped off on the beach and emptied the contents of his wallet there. Further searches were carried out, including a tractor being used to help sift through the sand, but no more of the family's personal effects were found. Well, at least not by investigators, because on July 31st, a fifth credit card was found on the beach. According to a laboratory specialist who examined the card, it was determined that it couldn't have been in the water for long before being discovered. It definitely couldn't have been in the ocean for 10 months. Therefore, it was likely that they were discarded one by one into the water in early 2001. The investigators and Murray Goddard's family believed that it was the work of an accomplice who wanted to make it look like Dr. Goddard and his children had died in an accident. Another theory was that it was the Goddard family themselves who wanted the items found so that the investigation would continue. But this theory doesn't really hold water because how would they have access to these cards? A briefcase believed to belong to Eve Goddard was found on August 8, 2003 in St. Brook Bay, However, investigators had never confirmed its authenticity, and it's likely that it was a hoax. The investigation seemed to come to a standstill for several years. 
but exactly eight years and 13 days after the last confirmed sighting of Dr. Goddard and his children, the sea would give up another clue. A fisherman named Ivan Karoff kept a detailed log about what he and his crew caught each day. On September 26th, he wrote, 43 monkfish, four lobsters, and on and on. But this day, there was one strange addition to his normal tally. The word bone, and next to it, in capital letters, was Goddard. He wrote that name on the day he found the bone, because the Goddard family was the very first thought that crossed his mind when he pulled them out of his net. The bones were a tibia and a femur. Those were an upper leg bone and a lower leg bone. They had been found interlaced in the mesh and had been dredged up from the bottom of the herd deep, the trench that's the deepest part of the English Channel. The reason for his initial reaction was that his friends were aboard the Ascara, the crew that had found the Nick's dinghy. They, too, were fishing over the trench when they saw it floating off in the distance. DNA analysis would come back, confirming that the bones belonged to Eve Goddard the man who had allegedly killed his wife and sailed away, the man that witnesses galore said they had seen all around the world, was actually dead. Sonar equipment was used once again to scour the trench, but no other bones were found, nor a single trace of the nick or boat parts of any kind. A month later, an anonymous letter would be given to police with a very detailed map of a cemetery in Normandy, the handwritten note included seven lines. It suggested that the remains of Marie could be found in a precise location in a cemetery. This was somewhat believable, because the cemetery was only 1.8 miles from the Goddard home. Investigators dug, and they did indeed come up with bones. But it's a cemetery, after all. Strangely, it was in a part of the cemetery where there shouldn't, or usually wouldn't, have been bones. The bones were tested, but they didn't belong to Marie. The letter writer would eventually come forward. He would say he was a retired general contractor, turned dowser or diviner or maybe even psychic. He said he used a pendulum on a photo of Marie and a map, which led him to the Goddard house and then to the cemetery. A year after that, another credit card in pristine condition with the name Eve Goddard, would be found on that same beach in Chappelle where the others would found, were found. That'd be eight years after they disappeared. It was in pristine condition. I can't explain it, unless some Giacomo is going out and making fake credit cards to sprinkle on the beach, just for their own twisted sense of entertainment. Thirteen years to the day after the sailboat disappeared, a judge dismissed the case, stating that there were no further elements that would change the outcome. The court stated the only conclusion that can be excluded is that the family simply disappeared on a boating excursion. And while the most probable explanation would be that Eve Goddard killed his family and then himself, they have no proof. The case was dismissed because they were unable to charge anyone with the crime. Marie and Marius' bodies are still missing and they're presumed dead. In 2015, they were officially declared dead, and no further bones belonging to Eve or Camille were found. On January 31, 2018, a small skull was found on a beach in Brittany, 
and most people thought it would belong to Marius. But DNA testing proved otherwise. It belonged to a little girl, and law enforcement had no idea who she is. That leaves us with lots of questions. What exactly happened to the family? Did Eve kill his wife, and if so, where's her body? Did he then go on a murder-suicide mission at sea? Is it really as simple as that? Had he originally planned on taking his kids with him? And what about those credit cards that kept popping up on the beach? Could he have had an accomplice? Where is the Nick? Well, there are several theories. There's one that Dr. Goddard is alive. There are some people who believe that he amputated his leg, but this seems unlikely. What are the chances that someone would find a leg floating out in the middle of the ocean, and why would someone put themselves through so much pain? He was a doctor, though, and he had morphine in his vehicle. There is an author named Eric Lemesson who published a book called The Murder of Dr. Goddard, which shed light on another theory relating to there being financial and mafia-ish reasons behind the disappearance. The book highlighted several murders of people that had ties to that French trade union slash mafia group that I spoke of earlier. Goddard played a very active role as a member of the group, and several other members were killed or died mysteriously around the same time that Dr. Goddard disappeared. If this were true, could the doctor have been coerced into writing the note and leaving on his sailing trip? Perhaps he killed his wife, or someone else did after holding her hostage. Then, once the rest of the family was at sea, the so-called mafia approached the boat, tossing them all in and scuttling the boat. They could have sent the letters and scattered the various cards over time to distract police. This theory is pretty convoluted, but we've certainly heard stranger things. Another possibility I've heard is that Marie isn't dead. She faked her death, pouring her blood on the bed and dripping it into the car. The trip would have been her idea. She went along with it. Then once out on the ocean, she killed her husband and kids, scuttling the boat, and met her lover somewhere. Since her body hasn't been found, I suppose this could be true, but come on. No one ever saw her on the boat. Personally, I think Dr. Goddard's world was crumbling. He was failing in his business. He felt like he was failing as a husband. Maybe he dreamed of a new life. He killed Marie, and after that, he took to the sea, knowing that he was going to kill his own children. Maybe he wanted just a little more time with them. They probably asked for their mother numerous times before he killed them, and then himself. If it weren't for those strange anonymous letters and the cards that kept washing up on the beach, this case would be pretty explainable. Well, there you have it. What do you guys think happened? Let me know on social media, through Facebook, Instagram, or even Gmail. There are links to those places in the show description. If you like what you heard today, please give Twisted Travel and True Crime a five-star rating and review or just say hi. A huge thank you to those of you who are generously supporting the podcast financially. If you'd like to do so, you can through Patreon or through a one-time donation. There are links for those also in the episode description. I've said it before and I will say it again. I've got absolutely the best listeners. So I thank you, each and every one of you. And to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.